You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you say yes to everybody but yourself, over time you burn out, over time you start resenting those people, not only will you start feeling sort of less of yourself, right? You're coming into this world, you're arriving at these conversations drained, literally. But that sense of resentment also starts impacting your relationship. So the very same relationship you want to protect you're actually debilitating. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but you still might be wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more I can do right now to secure my future? It's time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. Okay, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to picture in your head what a good negotiator looks like. What comes to mind? Maybe somebody tall, imposing, who knows how to command a room and demand what they want. Or maybe you think of somebody who doesn't compromise and isn't afraid to walk away from a deal. And maybe just maybe, the person you're imagining is a man. Many women don't often behave like the intimidating negotiators of our imaginations. The words aggressive and demanding aren't necessarily adjectives we want applied to us. And research from the Harvard Kennedy School shows that women who negotiate their salaries are already seen as less likable, less hireable, less likely to be promoted than men who do the exact same thing. Knowing that, it's no surprise that women are less likely than men to negotiate our salaries in the first place. But we can't just give up on negotiating. We still earn just 83 cents for every dollar a man makes, and that's on average. The gap is much wider for women of color. Negotiating for more pay is one of the most direct ways that we can work to close the gender and racial pay gaps. The question is, is there a way for women to negotiate in a way that allows us to stay true to who we are and even that plays to our strengths? Maury Teharipour says yes. She is a negotiation expert. She is a lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she has taught thousands of students how to negotiate. She also teaches negotiation to small business owners across the country via the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. And in 2020, she took her experiences with negotiation and turned them into a book, Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Today, she is bringing that wisdom to all of us. Maury, welcome. Thank you so much, Jean. It's great being here. It's a pleasure. So I have to just start by asking your book. It focuses on negotiating with honesty, with confidence, and with empathy. Are those elements that you believe are lacking in the process of negotiation as we know it today? Well, let's go back to the really great introduction you just did. 
the sort of imagining what a great negotiator looks like. And I think that that was like the perfect intro because what we see in movies, what we read in books, what we see as sort of the examples of what a great negotiator is, is often this person who's aggressive and in your face and combative and sort of towering over you, if you will. And the truth is, I always say, when is the last time you negotiated with somebody like that and you actually enjoyed it? And the answer is probably never. So I think that actually the examples that I see of great negotiators are the people that I often either teach or come into contact with are people who are actually quite the opposite of that image in our minds, right? They negotiate from a place of empathy. They negotiate from a place of curiosity. They negotiate with an emphasis on relationships and connections. They look at negotiations as humanity, right? As, as a conversation that brings people together rather than pulls people apart. And so I think that part of what scares not just women, but most people into thinking that they're not great negotiators or keeps them away from the table to negotiate in the first place is because they have this image in their mind. And I, and I only wish that we could sort of shift that paradigm because I don't think that's really sort of the majority of the people that negotiate. That, that's what they exude and that's what they gravitate towards. So listening to you makes me think of the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Did you see that movie? (laughs) I did. So there are a couple of scenes in that movie where Constance Wu, who is playing this diminutive woman who happens to be a professor of game theory at NYU, at Mm -hmm. least her character. Mm -hmm. You can tell I've seen this movie many, many (laughs) times because I remember those exact and precise details. But Two scenes come to mind. One, she is sitting in front of her class at NYU. She's playing poker with a master poker player that she has brought in to teach a lesson to her class. And she blows the pants right off him. I mean, she figures out exactly how to read the tells and plays her hand brilliantly as she does when she's in the mahjong parlor with this woman at the end of the movie who does not want her to marry her son. And she, again, is brilliant. That's not a classic negotiation, but that's the negotiation that you're describing. That's the person that I think you're describing. Yeah, I love that. I'm like, I need to watch that movie again. It's true. And and I think part of the brilliance of her, as you just sort of described, is that she never is out of sorts. She's quite clear, actually, about her sort of source of power, which is really in her values, especially the scene with her mother, her future mother-in-law, is that she sits in her values. And that allows her to be very calm because that's what's most important to her, that she's not willing to sort of bet away the things that are ultimately the most important things to her. And part of her, that is her convictions. Part of her is that she honors herself and really honors this person that she loves. And so it makes her not feel desperate, but grounded. And I think when we say, you know, sit in your power, people often, again, it sort of see this person who's really aggressive and sort of this overarching image of someone But it's actually somebody who understands their power knows that they don't have to sort of stand on a mountaintop and yell it, right? They don't have to scream that I have power. They sit very calmly in that which is important to them and that which they understand to be their source of power, I want to say. I don't want to use that word again, but what makes them stand quite still in that which makes them grounded. And what becomes very clear is that 
we negotiate every single day multiple times, right? We think of negotiation as this thing that happens sporadically when we get a job offer, when we're trying to raise our rates, when we want to ask for a raise. We don't necessarily think, when I am trying to get my four-year-old to put on a (laughs) coat, when they don't want to put on a coat, that's a negotiation. Yes. And again, a great point because we do negotiate all day, every day, particularly women, right? If you can negotiate with your four-year-old, I believe you can negotiate with anybody, right? Because actually kids are quite emotionally intelligent. They pick up all kinds of social cues that we sort of over time don't pick up as much because we have all these other things in our heads. So they're from, they come from a place of innocence and purity, which allows them to see everything and feel everything. And so that's what makes them almost great negotiators along with the cuteness factor. But really... The truth is we negotiate every day. And this is sort of how I start my classes because I want people to understand that this isn't a skill that we don't use or that is foreign to us. Literally from the moment we open our eyes in the morning, we're negotiating, pros and cons lists we have, deciding what we're going to wear for the day, even merging onto traffic on highways and negotiations, right? You're sort of problem solving, you're finding your space. And so when you realize that, I think that gives people sort of a lot of confidence and empowers them because you navigate this world negotiating every day. So can you become better? Absolutely. It's a learned skill, but do you already have a great foundation for it? Definitely. Tell me about you. I know that you are coming to us today. You're visiting your sister, you said, in California. I am sitting at the corner of 18th and Locust in Philadelphia. I graduated from Penn where you teach. I have had the opportunity to sit in, sometimes as a student, sometimes not, on a lot of Wharton classes throughout my lifetime, and they're, you know, a great, great resource. How did you come up to be a professor of negotiation at Wharton? Great question. Much like a lot of things in my life, I never planned to do this, right? I never thought it was in the cards for me. I'm much of an introvert. The thought of standing in front of a classroom would have scared the heck out of me. If you had asked me this question 20 years ago, I would have been like, I can't even imagine that. That's not a profession I would have ever thought I'd pursue. When I was at Wharton, I got actually, I was asked to teach by my own negotiations professor at the time. I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he thought, why he thought this is something that I could do well. And, you know, that's a longer story because we often come back and have that conversation. We still haven't pinpointed it yet. Besides, so my performance in the class, I had been an entrepreneur. I consider myself an entrepreneur um, for basically most of my career. And I think he thought that gave me a foundation to be able to communicate a lot of the things that I had learned in class and to do it from my own perspective, right, with my own sort of twist on it. And, you know, 18 years later, I find myself teaching negotiations at Wharton, which is, it's really crazy because now that I'm here, I can't imagine really doing anything else. It's sort of where I found my purpose and where I get my passion. And, you know, you asked me to tell you about myself. I am first generation Iranian. We had moved to the States during the revolution in 78, 79. And as with every sort of Iranian parent's dream, they had thought I was going to be a doctor. I am not a doctor. (laughs) Thus, in some ways, I've lived a life of disappointing my parents. But, you know, it's interesting because while I finally realized that's not what I wanted to do, I did realize, and this sounds very cliche, but I wanted to do something that would impact people, that would change people. And medicine didn't end up being that route, but teaching has really become that thing for me. And I think that 
again, negotiations is something that we use every day. And to think that we miss opportunities because we're afraid of it, to think that we are maybe where we are economically as women because we're afraid of it, or there's social cost of negotiating, to think that there's such a heavy burden that's placed on it. And yet it's something that we're so afraid of is something I want to sort of, you know, sort of do away with. And I'm hoping that my work allows people to understand that this is something that, again, they could be really great at and not as something that they're not, but exactly as who they are. You have been teaching, as you said, for 17 years. You put pen to paper in 2020 to write a book. So what was missing from the universe? What were people getting wrong about negotiations that made you think, yeah, it's time. I'm going to write this book because there's something in the body of work about this topic that I can add. So there's a lot of really great negotiation books out there. And it took me a while to actually decide to do this because I didn't want to just have another book that added to the sort of hundreds of books that were out there. I wanted to do something different. And what I thought was missing was that I found that a lot of the books were very prescriptive, right? Do this, say that, and then you'll succeed. And never do this, never do that. And what I didn't want to do is sort of follow that same pattern because, you know, negotiations isn't like baking a cake. It's really, again, if you think about it as something that sort of is different based on every situation, based on every interaction, that's driven by humans, by people, right? And the way we react to one another. And it's, I think, fundamentally based on who we are and what's important to us, or it should be at least. Then I wanted to write a book that said, you know, it's not that you can't be a great negotiator. It's that the reason why you don't often succeed is because you get in your own way. And so to better understand your own mindset, to better understand what maybe triggers you, what triggers that that fear, to better understand why you don't do things like set boundaries or you don't speak your voice, what keeps you back from doing that. I wanted this book to be very personal for people and to allow people to find their own way throughout this book, I tell stories. It's much like an autobiography, to be honest with you. It doesn't read like a textbook. It's intensely personal. And I wanted the subject to be sort of addressed that way or thought of that way. So at the risk of pushing back just a little bit, sure. I want to get to a little of the prescriptive nature, because I think that as we try to help people coming out of this podcast, having some new ways to think about this, whether they are on the list of do this, don't do that, or whether they're just new framing devices, new ways to tap into what we actually want would be extremely helpful. So I'm going to ask you to think about that for just a second while I take a short break to remind everyone that this show is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines because retirement is a big deal. And since women live longer, we have to make our savings last longer, which means we just have to be smarter about it. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with an advisor. I actually spent the last couple of days with some of the advisors from Edelman Financial Engines, and they were telling me about the interactions that they've had with members of the Her Money community. I was so excited to hear about how some of these were going because 
It enables you to get a fresh look at your finances and to work with experts to create a plan to help build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth for the retirement of your dreams because it's your money. Nobody cares about it as much as you do. It's up to you to make it count. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and you can speak with one of these great advisors today. I'm talking with Maury Teheripour, author of Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. So if we're trying to do this, whether we're trying to get that four-year-old to put on a coat, whether we're trying to decide what to wear ourselves, I love the idea that that is a negotiation because it's something that I struggle with on a daily basis or... Whether we're trying to set boundaries at work, we're in the middle of this quiet quitting movement that is generating an awful lot of headlines and is all about boundary setting. Where do you begin? So there are definitely sort of tactics, obviously, and strategies that one can use. And what I meant by not being prescriptive is that I think that those things are going to be different for all individuals because we have different personalities. We have different values. We come from different places. And so that's really what I meant. So rather than trying to force fit people into a particular set of words or, or phrases or actions, what I rather do is communicate things that I think are really important. One of those things, and I think everybody sort of knows this is that preparation is incredibly important, right? And that's true of whether it's negotiations or athletic performance, it doesn't matter, right? Preparation is incredibly important because once you are prepared and you come to the table as such, you feel more confident. Now, what preparation means may be a little different for people, but one of the things that I often emphasize is that you have to really understand yourself, who you are before you come to the negotiations table. And what I mean by that is, again, Understanding your own non-negotiables, right? Things like your values, things that you won't want to compromise because if you do so, then you're compromising everything that's important to you. So no matter what the outcome of the negotiations is, you won't feel whole if those are the very things that you put on the table, right? So sort of creating your own sort of personal boundaries and understanding your own non-negotiables. The second thing is in terms of preparation is to understand what kind of goals you have, right? What are the outcomes that you want to seek? And this one's really important, and I love sort of talking about the research around this because what we know in negotiations, and not just negotiations, but positive psychology research, is that people who set more aspirational goals tend to do better in their outcomes, right? So it's sort of what you see for yourself is what you end up getting, right? So if you don't allow yourself sort of to dream big, to want more for yourself, then that creates sort of limitations. Thus, it affects the outcome that you have, right? Those outcomes are from a place of limit and and scarcity as opposed to from a place of abundance and fullness, right? So again, sort of knowing who you are, setting those goals, really, really important. And, you know, one more thing I want people to understand is that in the world where there's so much going around us, right, we're distracted all the time. We have, you know, something like 12 to 60,000 thoughts a day, 80% of which they say are negative, right? So we're distracted. We have all these things in our head. Staying focused, being mindful and being really present is difficult. So I think we have to be far more intentional when we are negotiating about being really sort of there, being where, you, where our feet are for those conversations and really focused on your counterpart as well, right? Exercising things like emotional intelligence 
being really curious, right? Those people who come into negotiations with certainty and don't allow themselves to be curious, again, create limits as to the possibilities, the outcomes that could emerge. When you're curious, when you're open, when you're open-minded, if you can hear people, if you can listen to people, if you can focus on people, then that creates sort of not only a better conversation, but it allows room for you to learn throughout the process and maybe arrive at an outcome that is even better than what you imagined. I have so many follow-up questions. I, I can't even, I usually don't take notes while I'm doing this. I've been taking notes. So when we're talking about the non-negotiables, when we're talking about the things that we really want to come away with, whether that's time, whether it's money, how do we understand that these really are our non-negotiables and sit comfortably with them, particularly when there's a dollar figure attached, which I think a lot of women struggle with. So our non-negotiables are generally not associated with a dollar figure. I'll use salary negotiations, right? Compensation conversations as an example. And you sort of aptly pointed to the fact that there's, you know, salary gender pay gap that we struggle with still. But You know, when I talk to people about these conversations, I really turn it to compensation instead of just salary because, you know, there's the entirety of the benefits package, right? So, you know, what do we want when we negotiate our salary? We want to feel valued. I mean, that's really what that represents, right? For the work that we do, for the experience that we bring in. And so if you think about it as being valued, then I always say, you know, don't just plan for the here and now. Think about this from a three-year, five-year perspective and think about where you want to go and what are the things that are really important to you. Maybe when you think into the future, you want to say, I want to go and get another degree. So aside from just your salary, maybe another benefit that you should seek from the company is tuition reimbursement, right? Maybe they can pay for classes that you take, right? or time off to study for your entrance exams, whether it's a GMAT, an LSAT, whatever that is. Maybe you're a single mom and you want to have enough time during sort of these golden years with your kids that you don't wanna be at work all day, every day, even if work included you sitting in front of your computer, right? So negotiating the amount of time that people expect for you to be on your email working, responding, you know, so the flexible work schedules take on a different sort of, I think, level of importance for that person. So all of these things matter. When you think about your non-negotiables, what I'm really saying is it's usually not money. It's your sense of self, right? Mm -hmm. Your values, the things that are important to you. When you think about it more broadly, then there are more options for you to be able to successfully negotiate those things. A lot of women, and I put myself on this list, are people pleasers. We say yes to make others happy. We say yes to avoid conflict. We say yes for a lot of reasons that we should not say yes. My colleague, Gary, who is not just my colleague, he's been my friend for 35 years, and he, so he knows me very well, has me on what he calls the Nancy Reagan plan, which is just <laughs> say no, right? And and sends me like lots of just say no and pictures of Nancy Reagan and, you know, to just <laughs> remind me that I'm trying to just say no. How does this harm us in negotiations? I think I have to actually borrow that term from Gary, but it's interesting, not just women, but men 
find themselves to be pleasers as well. This happens to be probably one of the most popular chapters in my book or the one that I get the most questions about or comments about or, oh my God, that's me, you wrote about me. So a lot of us find ourselves to be pleasers. And, you know, so the upside of the pleaser, I think, in negotiations, I think pleasers can make excellent negotiators, by the way, is that pleasers, and I'll include myself in this, we are more emotionally intelligent, right? The What the other person feels wants, desires, how we spend time getting to know them, and even preparing for those conversations is really important. And so that's a great strategy to have in negotiations, right? Being focused on that person, really, really important. It gives you a lot of insight that a lot of other people who don't necessarily value those things sort of overlook, right? People pleasers happen to value relationships, right? All these things, again, that are really, really important in negotiations. So where does the pleaser go wrong? All that sort of the empathy and the compassion and the interest that we have for other people, we don't exercise for ourselves, right? And what we do is oftentimes we think that if we are to make ourselves happy, right, or ask for the things that we want, it has to mean that we're not doing so for the our counterpart. And that's just not true, right? These things are not mutually exclusive. They can be mutually inclusive, right? Everything you want isn't necessarily what your counterpart is going to want. So the key here is not to look at this as conflict, but to say, this will take time. This is a conversation, right? I'm going to arrive at this and not give up everything that's important to me, but really find a place where, you know, this is sort of that ultimate like win-win negotiations, right? The things that are most important to me are the things that maybe I'll fight for or I'll really place a greater emphasis on. And my counterpart will do the same and we'll find places where we overlap if possible. And that's not 100% of everything I want, not 100% of everything you want, but there is overlap, right? And so if we can think about the fact that there is oftentimes a place where we do overlap, right? And whether it's a small slither of the sort of, if you think about this as concentric circles overlap or a pretty large place where we find mutual agreement, you only arrive at that by having conversations, right? You only arrive at that by allowing yourself to ask for the things that you want. Because over time, if you think about pleasers as people who want to protect relationships, if you say yes to everybody but yourself, over time you burn out, over time you start resenting those people, and you're giving up all that's important to you, not only will you start feeling sort of less of yourself, right? You're coming into this world, you're arriving at these conversations drained, literally. But that sense of resentment also starts impacting your relationship. So the very same relationship you want to protect, you're actually debilitating. And it's a counter reaction to all that's important. So pleasers are interesting. I feel like there's such a great emphasis and great foundation for pleasers to be great negotiators, but it really takes valuing yourself and honoring yourself along with everybody else that you are sort of in the the relationships with or conversations with or negotiations with. Part of what I am reading between the lines and hearing is this doesn't all have to be done in a shot. Right. I mean, maybe with the four-year-old who you want to put on the coat. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Although I would argue, just let him go outside, get cold and come home. But do you have a time or a way that you get yourself away from the table, that you escape the scenario or words that you use to just give yourself a little space to process? Yeah, I think time away. Actually, I think taking a break, even breathing, 
can be really important, right? Because negotiations can become personal and there could be great emotionality. And the more of a relationship you have with somebody, the more emotional it could be. We are not robots, right? We bring ourselves to the table, to these conversations. And so therefore there is a reaction we may have, right? There is, maybe they trigger something. Maybe your sort of emotions are getting ahead of you. And so instead of saying, oh my God, if I walk away from the table, maybe they'll think that, I don't know as much, or I'm getting nervous. Everybody can take a break. I always say, everybody needs to go to the restroom, right? If that's the excuse that you have to use, then use it, right? But walk away, breathe through it, right? Bring yourself back to a place where you feel more grounded again, right? And can think more from a place of strength. And again, I'm not saying strength from a place of power, but strength from the place of critical thinking, right? Place of clarity. And once you do that, I think it allows you to see better, to understand better, especially if there's some amount of conflict. In negotiations, we call this going to the balcony. And all that means is that you're almost rising above the conversation and you're seeing it from another perspective, right? So if you're headbutting, if you can't seem to agree, then you take a break and you walk away and you say, what could possibly be going wrong? How can we change this conversation? What am I missing? And when you do that, you come back and you start restart this conversation. Maybe you're reframing it. Things tend to sort of level out. And I think that it's the mistake that we make that these things have to be done quickly, that we have to arrive at an outcome really quickly. You know, it's not that at all. Most great negotiators and most great negotiations take time. They're patient. Last question, and it's a little bit of a deviation. Near the end of your book, you write about how honest and empathetic negotiations are crucial for democracy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, boy. Yes. This was, you know, I wrote this, and the book was published in 2020, but really it was at a time where when I was writing that chapter is when, you know, I thought we were at the most sort of tumultuous point in political discussions in our households, in our society. Things haven't taken a break, it, it appears. And if nothing else, there are times where I think, oh my God, this is even crazier. These are not easy conversations, first and foremost, right? We feel very strongly about those things that are important to us. What I will say is that instead of committing ourselves to changing somebody's mind, I think our goal should be understanding, first and foremost, because we can't force somebody into submission. We can't force somebody to think like we do. But if we can, again, have empathy and better understand where people come from, then that's, I think, the beginning of our ability to not necessarily change, but maybe bring somebody along to a place that can create that change, right? Or maybe we move closer to them. And so... You know, this sort of harkens this notion of curiosity above all. We are so certain, we're so passionate that I think we lose that sense of self in all of this, right? We have to make people think exactly like us. That's very hard, very frustrating. Now, there are conversations where we have to just walk away, quite honestly. You know, some of this that I say will work. And other times you think, I'm just not going to have these conversations with this family member or this friend, because every time we do, it takes us to a place of disagreement that's creating sort of more space between us. So I think some of this is really better reading the situation. 
but also committing ourselves just in general to be more patient and sort of open mind, open heart, and really creating a better sense of understanding so you can better communicate to your audience as well. Maury Tahiri Poor, author of Bring Yourself. This has been really eye-opening for me, I think for a lot of our listeners too. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Catherine Tuggle will join us in just a sec for our mailbag. But before we do that, let's just remind everyone that her money is graciously supported by BCU. BCU, for those of you who don't know it, is a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't just happen at one single point, but rather at many different stages of your life, which is why BCU likes to say they are here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. You can learn more about eligibility to join BCU at bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle steps in now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hello, Jean. Okay. What part of that conversation resonated the most with you? Because I loved all of it. All of it. All of it. I mean, I, I am literally going to go sit in her class. There's so many classes that I want to take. I don't have time to take them all, but I am definitely going to take hers. And she was just such a lovely presence, right? I could see how she is a very successful negotiator because she's one of those people who makes you want to work with her you know, to reach a solution. Doesn't have to be the solution that she wants. Doesn't have to be the solution that you came in to achieve, but she has this extremely collaborative energy that I think good negotiators probably have. Yeah, that's a great point. The collaborative energy thing, that's so true because you have to convey your thoughts as if, you are involved in a collaboration and you have to present your case as if everybody is going to get a little bit of what they want. You might not all walk out with 100% of what you want, but everybody here is going to win is such a valuable thing to be able to convey. Yeah. And I liked her point for the pleasers in the crowd. I'm sure it's not just me, not just you, but that we have to respect ourselves as well, that we have to preserve the energy that we have in order to be able to bring our better selves to the work and the relationships and the things in our lives that actually matter to us. And if we're constantly saying yes to things that are draining and making us resentful, then we are going to say no to other things. And that's just a shame. Yeah. Yeah. So true. But I do want to say yes to our mailbag questions. Let's do it. Okay. Our first question today is from a first-time American mom in Europe. She writes, Hi, Jean. I have been listening to your podcast for a few years and finding the perfect advice for whatever moment I was living in. Over the last two years, I've made big changes in my life. I left a job in New York that I thought was my dream job and moved to a village in France with my husband, who is French. I had a baby, and now I'm on a path to starting consulting. I do need your help. My family has given money to my child when the child was born, and I've just been sitting on the checks for a year with no idea what to do. We envision her going to college in Europe one day, which is practically free, so no need for a 529. 
So what other option works for these checks to grow for when she maybe turns 21 and could have a good nest egg? Any ideas for how to diversify it and put it in different places? Thank you. First of all, your life sounds like it should be a Netflix show. Totally. Right? It sounds amazing. I was thinking, wow, married to a husband who is French, great accent, moved to a village in France, had a baby, starting consulting, lots of changes. I hope they haven't stressed you out too much, but I hope you're really enjoying it. It sounds really, really amazing. And you know there are like lavender fields involved somewhere. Somewhere, right? And bicycles, lavender Uh fields uh and bicycles. Totally. So basically, you are asking two different questions regarding this money, even though you don't realize it. There are two components that are at work here. The first is the account in which you put the money. And the second is how you invest the money that you put in the account. In the United States, there are two accounts that allow you to save and transfer financial assets to a minor while retaining control of that money until they reach the age of adulthood. They're called UTMA accounts and UGMA accounts. UTMA is uniform transfers to minors. UGMA is uniform gifts to minors. They're very, very similar. Basically, you can put money into these accounts for the benefit of the child. You can invest that money for the benefit of the child. And once they hit the age of adulthood, they can use that money pretty much for whatever they want. That's the risk here. And that's the risk that you take if you don't put the money into trust, that by the time your child reaches the age of adulthood, you will want to have educated them in order to make sure that they don't take the money and blow it on something that's not really your choice for them. So there's some education that has to go along with it. As far as growing the money over time, we're talking about an infant here, an infant with a very, very long time horizon, depending on what you envision this money being used for. But if it's something that you expect they won't tap into until they're in their 20s, maybe in their 30s when they're looking at buying their first house, you can invest that money very aggressively. You could put all of it in stocks. I probably would put all of it in stocks into some sort of a diversified, low-cost fund where you know that they're going to get the returns that the market provides over many, many years. Historically, we know if we do that, if we just put the money into a total stock index fund or a S&P 500 index fund. We know that we're going to mirror the market for years, and historically that has been a very smart thing to do. Because you're based in France, I would also ask your husband if there are particular vehicles that are available to French citizens 
of which your child is one, for growing their money. And then you can choose among the landscape. But once you get the money into some sort of an account, I'd put it to work and I would just let it work, let it ride the ups and downs of the market and know that your child is going to have a substantial cushion to help them launch on their adult life. Love that, Jean. Thank you. And I'm also really curious what is available in Europe because every country has its own interesting things to invest in. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend that I know, but I absolutely would talk with your French family and see what's available there. Definitely. Our next question today comes to us from Kimberly. She writes, if you went through a divorce a few years ago and then found out that your spouse hid assets or lied about income, can you reopen the case and have more awarded? And when would this be advisable? Thank you. Oh, Kimberly, I'm so sorry. Having been through divorce myself, the last thing that you want to do is just open it up and go through it again. But yeah, this is 100% worth a call to your lawyer to figure out what the cost would be of opening this up and what the likely outcome would look like. And that's how I would make the decision. If you are looking at a wash here, if you're looking at the fact that it's going to cost you just as much or even a little bit less than you would likely get because of the available resources to open this up, I would just wash my hands of it. I would acknowledge that this guy is an asshole who really should not be given the kind of break or grace that you're going to give him by not opening it up. But the time, the emotional drain on you and the cost to you is not likely to be worth it. If everything goes your way, there is the possibility that you could be awarded lawyer's fees. There is the possibility that you could get your money back, but you're never going to get your time back. So I would just look very, very closely at the future benefit, try to compare them as rationally as possible with your future costs and I might even get a second opinion from a second attorney on this one, just to make sure that you're not being led down a path where the only one who is going to make out here is the lawyer. Such a great point, Jean. And I was thinking maybe she would get awarded her attorney's fees if she did reopen the case, but that's never a guarantee. It's never a guarantee. I'm sure the burden of proof is incredibly high. You're going to need to really know where these assets are and probably employ a forensic accountant in addition to an attorney to help you dig them up. That, too, is an expense that you're going to want to make sure you've got a grip on. Thank you so much, Jean. In today's Thrive, here's the deal. When it comes to saving money for retirement and then putting it to work, nearly three quarters of women, some 73%, say they know what steps to take. But when it comes to making that money last, 
fewer than half, just 47% know what to do next. That's the headline from the State of Women 2022, a new survey of more than a thousand women from hermoney.com and the Alliance for Lifetime Income. And that is a problem because retirement, when it eventually does come, can last 30 years, 40 years, even more. No doubt having this knowledge is one big reason that most women worry about money at least several times a month. So how much do we need? By the time you retire, you'll want to aim to have about 10 times your current income socked away in a retirement account. That amount, coupled with Social Security, should be enough to enable you to live comfortably with resources that match about 80% of your pre-retirement income for a good three decades. And if that 10% sounds insurmountable, don't panic. Just try to nudge your savings rate up by about 2% every six months or so until you're socking away 15% of your current income. That can include matching dollars from your employer, by the way. A consistent 15% is generally enough to get you there. Second, Focus on a plan to make that money last. That should include strategizing to delay Social Security as long as possible because on average, for every year you delay taking benefits from age 62 to age 70, you get a bump in your monthly check of about 8% annually. Although I do want to point out that average doesn't always equal you. If you're widowed, divorced, or if there's a big age or income disparity between you and your spouse, check with a financial advisor on your social security claiming strategy. Making the money last also requires planning on how much and when you're going to pull out of your retirement accounts because retirement is long. You need to give your money the chance to continue to grow to keep up with inflation, but you also have to protect against longevity risk or the risk that you'll live longer than you anticipated. One way to do that is by taking a chunk of your retirement funds and using them to purchase an annuity or a lifetime paycheck that'll last as long as you do. These products come in a lot of shapes and sizes. So again, talking to a financial advisor about what might fit and when to buy it is a really good idea. Bottom line, putting away money is a crucial step toward creating the retirement that you envision, but it is not the only one. Creating a retirement income strategy is just as, if not more, important. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Maury for helping us all feel more confident at the negotiating table. I hope that you're all inspired to get out there and A, figure out what you want and then B, figure out how to get it. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk soon.